Hey, TSL fam, producer Jeff here, and we are taking this week off because of the holiday, but I hope you all are having a nice Thanksgiving and or Black Friday. For those of you not in the United States, we hope you're enjoying your November. Um, But we wanted to re-air an episode just to kind of get you all through the holidays. This is a wonderful episode with Dr. Kristen Neff. Um, Meg met Kristen Neff at Pixar um, when she was doing some consulting based on emotional intelligence and self-compassion. And it's just such a wonderful episode. And, you know, the holidays can be a really wonderful time. But for a lot of us, especially kind of independent creatives who are chasing that dream when it gets hard, the holidays can be kind of tricky. Um, So if you're someone who loves the holidays or you're someone who kind of gets lonely around the holidays, I totally understand. I've been I've been everywhere when it comes to dealing with that. So hopefully this episode is a nice boost for anyone who might need it right now. Um, Thank you so much to Dr. Kristen Neff for your time on this. And just remember, if you're someone who had a wonderful Thanksgiving or you're someone who maybe is having a tougher holiday right now, you aren't alone. You have a wonderful community of writers rooting for you and uh, keep writing. Welcome to The Screenwriting Life. I'm Meg LaFauve. And I'm Lorianne McKenna. We are professional screenwriters. We've worked together as a team and separately. We've worked on studio and indie films, live action and animation, from my work on Inside Out and Captain Marvel. To my work in Pixar's story department on Up, Brave, and Inside Out. We are here to share our insights on the craft of screenwriting and also the life. How to not only survive the ups and downs, but thrive. We want to help you become the best screenwriter you can be and to reassure you that you are not alone on this journey. Hey everyone, welcome back to the show. Today we are chatting with celebrated academic and wellness thought leader, Dr. Kristen Neff. Kristen received her doctorate from the University of California at Berkeley and is currently an associate professor of educational psychology at the University of Texas at Austin. She's a pioneer in the field of self-compassion research, creating a scale to measure the construct for almost 20 years. In addition to writing numerous academic articles on the topic, she is author of the book, Self-Compassion, The Proven Power of Being Kind to Yourself. And her new book, which the title alone, it just, I'm so excited about this book. Listen to this title, you guys. Fierce Self-Compassion, How Women Can Harness Kindness to Speak Up, Claim Their Power, and Thrive. I've seen already crying. Welcome to the show. (laughs) Uh, Today, we're going to talk about how we can find more self-compassion when it comes to our work and our writing. Um, So Kristen, welcome to the show. We're so excited to have you here. Yeah. Oh, thanks. Happy to be here. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Guys, we're just in for a treat. Um, I've uh, had the chance of seeing Kristen speak, and I was just so blown away by everything she has to say for you guys today. Uh, But before we dive into our conversation, we're gonna first do uh, our weeks or what we like to call adventures in screenwriting or if today we're gonna call it adventures in writing. Uh, So Lorian, we'll start. So Kristen, you get a sense of it. Uh, uh, Lorian, how was your week? Well, I find it really interesting that we're talking to you today, Kristen, because uh, I have no idea what self-compassion is. And today or this week, uh, I spent most of it um, judging myself, beating myself up, comparing myself to others, uh, doing all the things that I do when I feel stressed, overwhelmed, not enough, not good enough. Uh, the beginning of the year, this year has been really stressful for me in terms of uh, multiple aspects of my life. My, I, my daughter switched schools, uh, you know, uh, and I'm working really hard to get a project up and going. Uh, so it feels like I'm working and grinding and there is no there there at the end of it necessarily. So 
uh, it's really hard to stay focused on what I, what my strengths might be. And so I'm really trying to investigate that, uh, but it feels really, really hard, really hard. And uh, so I've spent some time crying this week. I will probably cry on the show. So, you know, just everybody get ready for that. So that's been my week. The artist life, the artistic (laughs) life. Uh, Kristen, how was your week? Uh, well, it was a, it was a, it was a good week. I'm also, so I'm actually transitioning. I just, uh, I took early retirement from UT Austin. I haven't updated my, um, <laughs> my title yet, uh, partly because I, I just didn't have time to do make mentor students and teach classes and do all that self-compassion work, writing books, giving talks, um, teaching self-compassion, et cetera. So there's a lot of fear there, this transition, you know, who am I if I'm no longer to be an assistant professor? Um, so that's been uh, stressful. But on, on the uh, other hand, I also got put together an outline for uh, my next book, <laughs> which is Self-Compassion for Burnout. So it was kind of both things. It was, um, it was good. It was creative, but it was also a little stressful and kind of I feel like the pieces of me have been thrown up in the air and I haven't yet seen where they're going to land. It's so amazing that growth does that, right? That we yes. all want to grow. We all want, you know, to do more. And yet that process itself is so, can be so yeah. uh, jumbled yes. in the in emotion. And the name of that book alone, I'm so excited about yeah. that. But of course, we won't talk about that today. We have so much <laughs> more to talk about. Um, uh, my week, just quickly, I'm finishing up a very long run of writing uh, every day, five to eight hours a day for months including Christmas day guys. Um, so, uh, it, 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 that, that process emotionally and as a writer was very interesting because there were days that I think on the whole were the most of them that I almost got into a kind of trance, um, because it was just so constant. And this flow of writing was so constant that I could go in very quickly. And I, I don't, I'm not going to say it felt like I was on LSD. I don't even know what that feels like, but it literally felt trance-like and very, because my brain was getting tired and it kept going. I think what was happening is my, my dream brain was actually starting to engage because I was so tired, <laughs> but uh, it was, it was kind of cool. Um, I, I'm not recommending it necessarily. But on the other hand, there were days that it felt like I was scraping the inside of a melon down to the rind in terms of my <laughs> head. Like I cannot, but, but it, you, I still came up with some stuff guys down at that rind, because when you have to, you have to. Um, and then the other thing that's happening this week and has been happening is of course, notes, getting notes, getting comments back. And, um, I gave notes on another project. Um, which always is invigorating to me um, and inspiring to me um, to to do that. And then I also um, got notes, <laughs> which led me, of course, to the um, Kristen on the podcast. Um, uh, a friend of mine said once that getting notes is uh, go. You go through a process of fuck you, fuck me. What's next? And uh, I've been observing how quickly I can move through those sometimes. And some days I can't move through them quickly at all. And sometimes it has nothing to do with notes that I'm getting. It literally has to do with me and my, and what else is going on in my life maybe, right? Like sometimes just getting notes, it's, you can't, you have to get some distance on, is this about the notes? Is this about the person giving them to me? Is this about the project? No, I'm just super tired. And I have all these other things going on and I just need some time to process and get through the fuck you or the fuck me, which is where you can also get stuck 
So that also brought, I thought was a good um, transition into self-compassion because I think what I'm trying to describe here is having self-compassion enough to say, you know what, I'm kind of stuck and fuck me right now. And I'm going to be compassionate with myself that I'm stuck and not now fuck me even more because I'm stuck and fuck me. Like it, it becomes this like a mirror house, right. Of, uh, of, of attacking yourself. So I'm so excited to talk about this. And um, we thought we should start by really just the basics for our audience to orient them about when you say the word self-compassion, Kristen, what do you mean by that? Because people might have different uh, ideas of that. Yeah, no, they absolutely do. So um, kind of my, my model of self-compassion, um, the one I, th this research, right, in terms of I created a skill to measure it, is actually there's three different aspects to self-compassion. So the most obvious one is just self-kindness, right? Treating yourself with the same warmth, care, concern that you would naturally show to a friend, right? I mean, if you actually were to think, if I were to say to my best friend what I just say to myself, well, first of all, would I say that? No. And what would be the consequence if I said that? And just think that would pop, that's the consequence you're having with yourself. So part of it is just being kinder, warmer, more supportive, but it's not just that. So actually the first step of self-compassion is mindfulness. In other words, we need to be aware, recognize that we're struggling. And you may think, what do you mean? Of course I know when I'm struggling, but we often don't. Either we're just like, you know, barreling through, just like, you know, gritting our teeth and burying it. We don't pause to say, wow, I'm so stressed or, you know, gosh, I need to stand up and stretch or this is so hard right now. We're just so lost in it. We have no perspective. It, it'd be like if your friend called you up and said, hey, I'm really upset. I need to talk. You're like, I don't have time for this. We're kind of like that with ourselves. So, so really the first step is recognizing that things are difficult or we're stressed. And that can be difficult because we feel bad about ourselves or just because we're sick of the pandemic, you know, whatever the source of suffering is. And then we're kind to ourselves. And then really important with what makes compassion different than something like pity. I mean, self-pity is not healthy. What's the difference between pity and compassion? Well, if I pity you, you don't like it because that means I'm looking down on you. I'm separate from you. If I have compassion for you, it's like, hey, I've been there. I'm with you. So self-compassion is connected. It's not poor me. It's not woe is me. It's just remembering, hey, life is difficult for everyone. There's nothing wrong with me for struggling. You know, this is this is a human condition. We, we, we're all imperfect. We all lead imperfect lives. And the reason that's so important is because it helps us feel not so alone. And that sense of aloneness that arises when we beat ourselves up or we're full of shame is a incredibly debilitating. So you've got those three, it's like, how, how do you bake a self-compassion cake? <laughs> one part mindfulness, one part um, common humanity. And you might say the sugar is the kindness, right? And then it, then it coheres together, but we really need all three. Otherwise, I mean, you know, if it's just self-love, I don't know, Donald Trump may love himself. I, don't, I have no idea what goes on in that man's head, but it's not self-compassion. There's no sense of connectedness. There's no sense of, hey, we're all imperfect human beings doing the best we can, right? So that's what, it's really important to, to make that distinction, I think. That's amazing because when I was, my kids were in preschool, there was an emotional intelligence preschool. And I think that now that you're saying that, that's what they were trying to teach the parents, which is first, you just let your kid be aware of the emotion. They're having an emotion. Yes. Right. And then you are kind about it, which is mm -hmm. I'm going to sit here and 
with you and you can do it and let's you're okay and then it's about not you this this is a human being I do it you and it's funny if my teenagers I still do it I'm like well you're this is what it feels like to be a teenager because yeah. I don't want them to feel like it's their personal flaw or something I mean I do yes. it to myself you guys <laughs> but all the time yeah. um, but I think that's an amazing sandwich for ourselves to think about in terms of just stop even just catching yourself that you're doing yes. it right now yes yeah absolutely How do you literally do that though right I think like I feel like I'm really good at being available to other people and listening sitting in something with them recognizing helping them tease out what's actually going on and then mm-hmm you know, that process. And I feel really good about that. And that is one of my strengths. Oddly enough, I did recognize that this week, but, Mm -hmm. and I hear what you're saying and I get it. But when I feel myself tunneling into that cave, like, and I'm aware, okay, I feel like I'm struggling. I'm tunneling into the cave. I'm beating myself up. Is it just thinking, like, I don't know how to do the difference between uh, kindness to myself and letting myself off the hook, right? right. Yeah, um, you probably know that with your kids though, don't you? I don't know if you have kids, yes. but if, yeah. if you have kids, so uh, and imagining the ideal parent is a really good way to think about it. So as a parent, we love our kids unconditionally, whether they mess up or not. We love, the, the bottom line is unconditional love. And yet, is it loving if your kid really is doing something that's really unhelpful, says, mom, I don't feel like going to school this week. You know, it's like, okay, sweetums, that's fine. You know, would, you be, would you be a compassionate parent if you told sweetums that? No, you wouldn't be a good parent. So we know that as parents, we, we need to think of well, what's best for our children? What do they actually need? And then try to give it to them, even if it's not maybe what they want in the moment. They want to eat the entire cake, but it's not good for them. And so we have to, we, we learn to trust that we know also what's good for us. We need to, we don't always know, sometimes we get it wrong. But if we actually sincerely ask, what's going to be most healthy for me right now? We, are, we already have the wisdom inside. So for instance, you know how to be self-compassionate because you've developed the skills of compassion with other people. It's not rocket science. What you need to do is two things. First, um, uh, give yourself permission to do this. By the way, it's a little harder for women because women don't feel entitled to meet their own needs. We're, we're praised and valued if we meet everyone else's needs. And they, people love a self-sacrificing woman. Boy, that's good for the patriarchy, isn't it? Whoa, <laughs> women love to be self-sacrificing. Good for us, you know? I mean, we got to think about this. These are the norms of our culture that we're supposed to be self-sacrificing, even though it actually doesn't help anyone. So if we value our own needs and we think actually... Um, I'm a human being like everyone else. I'm worthy of a compassionate response. You give yourself permission. uh, And then you, part of it is just developing the new habit, right? And it it is a little weird at first. It feels a little awkward to treat yourself, to talk to yourself in a kind of kind, supportive manner. You do get used to it over time, but it it takes a commitment. And usually the the motivation for it is, you know, how's, how's your current system working for you? Probably not so well for most people, there's a lot of pain, a lot of dysfunction, and there is um, an empirically supported way to change that pattern. You just have to practice. There, there, we've got like, you know, a dozens of techniques we've developed to practice. You can take training programs, you can put sticky notes on your, you know, there's a lot of things you can do to help you remember. But it really starts with giving yourself permission. Yeah, it feels like it's a discipline. 
which I think a lot of us, I know I, decide that discipline is just full steam ahead, foot on the gas, I'm doing yeah. it, right? With yeah. at, like narrow focus, I'm doing this 100%, yeah. which, which is how, you know, black and white thinkers, right? It's how we barrel through for success. But what you're suggesting is that there is a different methodology. Methodology. Yeah. Well, so I'm like that as well. I'm, I'm probably, I'm probably a little OCD, and this is, I'm very focused. I mean, I, I sometimes will stay up till three in the morning working on something if I'm, if I'm really barreled in. There's nothing wrong with that, and I think for people who are creatives, and you know, I think that's kind of part of the mindset. There's nothing wrong with that at all. Uh, it's only a problem if, um, for instance, you start judging yourself for being that way. Or if you can't do that for some reason, you start being mean to yourself. Right? So it, does, it doesn't have to look any particular way. What, what it just, it, our overall relationship to ourselves needs to be framed in the larger mindset of what's healthy, what's good. And you know, so self-care, sometimes people confuse self-compassion and self-care. Self-care is like you know, taking breaks. I'm drinking four quarts of water a day, doing yoga, right? Sometimes that's, the more you can do that, the better, but this is really different. This is emotionally, when you're suffering, how are you relating to that suffering? The word compassion, passion means suffer, come means with. How are we with our suffering? So the suffering may be um, a negative thought you have about yourself. Do you beat yourself up about it? Do you run with it? Or do you say, huh, actually that hurts, aw. And you just change the perspective. Just like if your child said something bad about themselves, you would naturally say, oh, that's not true. Or I care about you. Or you know what I mean? That's just kind of our natural response to others. Hey everyone, so the new version of Final Draft, Final Draft 13 is out. And you know, the question's going around, is it worth it? Is it worth it to buy or upgrade? And our answer is yes. So I recently got notes on a pilot and I wanna see how it works in my rewrite to move a couple of scenes. And usually what I do is, you know, cut and paste, uh, which works out sometimes, but mostly it means I lose text because I move so quickly. But the new version of Final Draft has this cool feature called Navigator 2.0, where you can actually just move scenes around right in your script. So without losing something, I can see what's working, what I'm missing, or what needs to be rewritten, or you know, if I have to lose the scene altogether. But it's really, really helpful. And what's most important to me about this is that I'm not losing anything. Woohoo! Yes. I am laying out a new project, and I want to card it. And I can now do that inside of Final Draft, and it's now a super easy way. You can take those cards and then make them into an outline with a simple drag and drop. So it's just a great way to see the larger story that you're writing and get down the details, track characters. I just love it. And for our emerging writers, a great new feature is Final Draft lets you set writing goals like page count or timed writing sprints, which is super cool. So uh, we think the new version is really worth uh, investing in. So you can head over to finaldraft.com slash products to get the new version with a discount code of ScreenFD for 25% off. You should check it out. That's ScreenFD, S-C-R-E-E-N-F-D. Do you think, I have so many questions going on in my head right now, I'm so excited. Okay, but the one I want to ask first is, um, so this is my own experience, so I'm not saying it's everybody, but sometimes I think that my, um, I'm going to call it self-loathing, feels, mm -hmm. you know, 
the opposite of self-compassion perhaps is um is actually trying to protect me and it's yeah. a survival instinct and that if you actually do what you're saying and stop and catch it and give yourself permission then what rises up is the sadness or is the disappointment or is all those odd it actually they actually feel harder than to beat yourself up because to beat yourself up feels like we're taught in this society that that's good and that means you've got grit and both and yet the 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 sadness or the having to look at a, a crack uh, that's that's rising right and as writers I'm always saying to them uh, to the emerging writers but to any writer to myself that writing when it's an art is that you do go towards that lava I call it because it feels like it's going to burn you up yes um, and that in a weird way sometimes that self-loathing is actually trying to protect you from that lava and yet it's also stopping you from writing, right? And it's it's doing everything it can to get you away from that lava. And yet to be that artist, you actually have to be like, oh, well, fuck it. I'm, I, I might be broken and fucked up, and but I'm gonna what, give yourself that permission anyway. So yeah. I, I'm, I'm talking too much here, but like- Well, you know, you, you're spot on. You should be a psychologist. What, what you said <laughs> is it's not only, is it totally supported by research? Okay, so what we know, self-criticism comes from our evolutionary uh, fight, flight, or freeze response. So we fight the problems. When we, when we criticize ourselves, there's so many ways in which unconsciously we think we're being safe. We're beating other people to the punch. We're lowering our expectations so we won't get disappointed. We're forcing ourselves to change so that then we'll be safe. That's why when we criticize ourselves, actually our, our cortisol levels get elevated, which are associated with the fight, flight, or freeze response, right? There's also, what, is, what does fleeing look like? We flee in shame. Just think when that feeling of shame arises. This is an evolved response, but we, hide, we hang our head in shame. We're kind of protecting ourselves from the perceived judgments of others, right? The freeze response, what's that? Over and over in your head, ruminating when you get stuck, that stuckness. This is like, well, maybe if I just don't move, the problem will go away. So this is why we can't beat ourselves up for beating ourselves up. I mean, we do, but why we shouldn't? Because we're just trying to stay safe. We're trying to stay safe from danger. But here's the thing. We have another system that evolved to keep us safe, and that's the care system. So fight, flight, or freeze is more about personal survival. You know, a lion's chasing me. I got to run like hell or freeze to play dead or whatever. Um, the care response developed to, to keep safe our, our, our children safe and our group safe. So it's also very natural for a baby or an infant to want to help it, to try to soothe it if it's upset, to protect it. It's also natural in groups to try to cohere as a group and keep the group safe because that's also how we survive. But the care system evolved more for other people. We also have a whole different physiology. When the care system is activated, we have increased heart rate variability. Our cortisol levels go down. So what we're doing is we're kind of doing a hack with self-compassion. We're using something that kind of that evolved more to care for others, and we're using it with ourselves. And here's the thing: we don't do it as the way of um, like getting rid of the self-critical thoughts. I mean, sometimes they have information. But we try to say, can we say that in a more constructive manner, <laughs> right? So in other words, we don't want to like squash our inner critic. We want to say, thank you for trying to help. I hear you. But, you know, I think we can say this in a way that's a little more constructive. 
So I have a whole exercise. You can find it in, in the Mindful Self-Compassion Workbook about how to motivate yourself with um, kindness as opposed to criticism. And what we do is we listen to the inner critic. We try to think, how is it trying to keep me safe? We thank it for its efforts. And then we, we say, could you just make a little room for this other voice, which is a more inner compassionate voice? And then we say, well, what message might I have to my, for, for myself from this perspective? It's exactly like parenting, a good parent. You know, if you, if you tell your kid you're crap, do it or else, you'll get short-term compliance, but you have long-term harm. That kid will become afraid of failure. They'll have performance anxiety. It's the exact same thing with ourselves. We get short-term compliance, long-term harm. If we motivate ourselves just because we care, I want to reach my goals. I'm not, I'm not inadequate. It's not like I'm a horrible person if I don't reach my goals, but I want to. I want to succeed because it makes me happy, you know, because this is what gives me meaning in life. Then here's the kicker. When you fail or you write that screenplay that gets rejected or whatever it is, it's like, instead of I'm a horrible person, it's what can I learn from this failure? How can I grow from this? You're in the mindset to actually be able to learn. And so self-compassionate motivation is more effective because it's linked to growth mindset. It's linked to learning. Um, it means more sustain, more grit, more sustainability because if you not get you get knocked down, you can get back up again. So, so you're natural. You're you're natural born psychologist, <laughs> Meg. You just didn't know it. <laughs> that, and I've done a lot of research for like movies like Inside Out or whatever. Well, so yeah, like, there um, you go. Well, that's I, why. That's why. <laughs> um, you know, I, I love that because I've been on Zoom calls with other writers getting notes um, and I'm just so amazed at their ability to stay present and um, have that mindset of um, how am I going to grow from this? How's the project going to, I want these notes to grow from this. Um, I mean, they're rare birds. I have to be honest. I think a lot of writers get a blank face because internally they're moving through that process of fuck me. Um, it's weird because as artists, I think that we are so sensitive and I mean that in a positive yeah. way. We're so, it's like we're tuned um, beings for storytelling. So we yes. are very sensitive to any feeling or what's happening in the room or we're, yes. we're so attuned. We're such tuning forks that you yes. can get lost a little bit. Yes. And I, and I, and sometimes it, you, if, even if you can't do this, it's just about catching it and getting that distance if you can. And I love this idea of your workbook. I'm going to buy it tomorrow, today, um, because I think we, it, it is like Lorian mentioned, a discipline. It is a habit, like you said, that we yeah. have to get into. So in a weird way, I'm trying to say to people, don't judge yourself if you can't do what, she, what Kristen is describing right now. Yeah, she's telling you it's a habit. It's a muscle that we're just going to have to do it. And bigger things may come up. And if it comes up, we are these tuning forks. We're writers. Take it to your work. Right. Take well, it to your work. And here's the thing. It's not about getting it right. It's about opening your heart. So one of the sayings we have in the self-compassion world is the goal of practice is simply to be a compassionate mess. You can still be a mess. You will still be a mess. You don't have to try to be perfect. You don't have to try to get it right. But if your goal is when you get it wrong, can you be kind and supportive and warm with yourself? You know, can that. you try to learn from the experience? You can be a compassion. I'm a, I'm still a mess. After 20 years, I maybe marginally a little better in some small ways, but I'm, you know, I'm just as reactive. I still have all my, I still have my personality that I, that I was basically born with in many ways but I'm compassionate toward the mess. And it makes all the difference in the world because you can, you can live that way. 
Uh, and what starts, here's what starts to happen. It's very interesting. Instead of your happiness and your sense of worth being contingent on getting it right, your happiness starts being contingent on, is your heart open or not? Even when something goes terribly wrong, when you give yourself compassion and you give yourself kindness and warmth and love and you feel connected to others. So you're in a state of like loving, connected presence. That's another way to describe the three components, loving, connected presence. That's, a, that's a happiness. That's kind of the, that's the meaning we all long for. And it's totally not contingent on getting it right. In fact, it, it steps in precisely when things are most difficult. And your whole, the, kind of the whole foundation on which you base your happiness and sense of self-worth shifts. And it's much more stable and much more achievable. I have a question. Well, two things. One, I was on a notes call this week and I was- By the way, I just, I'm not, so notes, does that mean like criticism or something? What is that? That means so good. I pitched, uh, my partner and I pitched our project and uh-huh. then we got feedback. Oh, right? so that's what notes means, feedback. So okay, like got it. Hard stuff, right? It's okay. questions, you know. So okay. Basically, this doesn't work. (laughs) Okay, right, right. Okay, got it. And here are my ideas to how to fix it. And here are some other ways it doesn't work. Oh, and by the way, here are some questions that blow everything up, right? Right. So, but it was interesting. The notes were big and Mm -hmm. I didn't do the fuck you, fuck me, what's next. I was in what's next while I was listening to the notes Mm -hmm. and I made myself really open. But then what happened, and here's how I beat myself up about it. I couldn't celebrate that I was available for the notes because then I was like, oh, we need to do all these notes, right? Instead of pulling back and looking at them in a bigger context, right? So, but I was so quick to jump in and say, oh, here's where I'm bad. Here's where I'm not successful at this. When I was so proud of myself at the beginning for being so available and present in the notes, which I have struggled with in the past, like Meg, you were mentioning. I'm, I have this, um, we're talking earlier about our fear response. And so, yes. you know, I go right to, I'm not good enough, which tags yes. into my fraud syndrome, which is like, yes. I don't want any, I eventually everyone's going to find out the truth about me. So if I believe it before anyone else finds out, then I'm protected. The yes. other side feels to me confidence in myself, no matter what. And then someone finds out that that, you know, that I'm not worthy or good enough, that pain feels worse than the pain I'm inflicting on myself. So I know what you're, you're not talking about confidence, right? But no, not, it's not positive affirmations, right? But it does the opposite. connected to me to be, um, to self talk to myself, to have self-compassion. It does feel like I need to believe that what I'm saying to myself in the self-compassion is true. And in order to access believing in that truth, I do need to have some confidence in myself, in my strengths, or is, am I getting this wrong? Well, so it's really important. So, so for instance, there's a difference between self-esteem and self-compassion. So the the way when they're similar is they're both kind of about an underlying sense of self-worth, but self-esteem is typically contingent. It's about being special and above average. Right. So if you got feedback that, yeah, your screenplay was average, you'd be devastated. If you told me my book was average, I'd be devastated. That's just the way it kind of works. Right. So we need to be special and above average. Um, and it's contingent on success, you know, looking a certain way or being, you know, performing a certain way or other people liking you. It's also contingent on that. The sense of self-worth that comes from self-compassion is unconditional. 
right? So in other words, you can still be a mess and have self-compassion. You don't have to lie to yourself to say that you're a mess. You are a mess. I'm a mess. We're all messes. I mean, that's kind of the human condition. If you use self-compassionate language that sounds like bullshit, you know, like, oh, that was, no, you're really such a good person when in fact you were pretty damn mean to that person, your, your assistant, whatever. That's not self-compassionate. That's just lying to yourself. So let's take this because um, I can be reactive and I've, I can be mean sometimes. I'm hope, hopefully I'm not usually, but it happens, right? It's like a very strong personality. So the feeling, okay, I was mean, let's say. So what compassion would look like if I was mean to someone is, first of all, feeling the pain of that. Wow. Because if you just blow it off and you really want to say, I wasn't mean, it was the other person's fault. They were being stupid. <laughs> That's not going to help you. Okay. So I, I was, what I said was really mean. First of all, you start with the mindfulness, feeling the pain of that. That was, that was mean. I was, it's not that I mean, what I said was mean. So that's also important to differentiate you from your behavior. What I said was really mean. Mindfulness. Oh, that really hurt. Okay. And so it's almost like, I might not even say my thing to myself, but I would like soften around that. Oh, that really, that really hurts. Sort of like that you were really mean. It's like, wow, I was mean. I was a human being. I was fallible. I said something that I regret. So I'd taken the pain of it first. And then by the way, um, usually I'm very quick to apologize partly because, I, partly because I can take that in. So you aren't saying that you aren't lying to yourself because that's not going to help you. You're letting it in, you're opening to it, but in a supportive way. Yes, I may have said something mean. Am I the only person in the history of humanity that has ever said something mean? No, we all do it. We're stressed. It's, you know, it happens sometimes. I guess I do try to work on it and I'm marginally better, but whatever. This is, it's probably also the thing that's tied to the fact that I can be really successful at some things. You know, a lot of these personality traits have good and bad aspects to them. And so that's, that's the way you would approach it with warmth, you know? Yeah, so occasionally I can say something mean. It doesn't mean I'm a, not a valuable person, you know? Again, just like when that child was first born, the love is unconditional. They don't have to earn your love and care. It's, it's just an intrinsic part of being a human being. And you actually learn to... Um, and really compassion is like no one is cut out of the circle of humanity. So we, we can't cut ourselves out either. We are human beings intrinsically worthy of kindness, respect, and support, just like all other human beings. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. If you're hoping you're, if you're, hoping you're never going to mess up again, it's not going to happen. Compassionate mess. It really helps me. Okay, I'm a compassionate mess. I'm a mess. What I said was wrong. Down path. You know? Yes. And then, so can you be compassionate with that mess? You don't have to stop being a mess. Isn't that the good news? You can it does but, feel like a survival instinct that if I'm compassionate with the mess, I will fail more. Yes, it, it, but, it's a motivating factor. I'm not saying this make, even makes logical sense. Well, I know sense. that's the first thought, but ironically here, the research really supports it. It's the exact opposite. The more you're able to accept the mess, and give yourself warmth and kindness in the midst of the mess, the more resources you have to get yourself out of it and to make change. When you beat yourself up, again, it kind of just, first of all, makes you not even want to look at the mess or it de depresses you 
or, you know, like, let's face it, shame is not exactly a get up and go mindset to like do those healthy changes in your life. So the more we accept our imperfection, the better chance we have at doing something about it, even though we're never going to be perfect, but it gives us the resources, the best possible space to learn from our mistakes and grow from them. And again, you don't have to just believe me. We got a lot of research supporting this. I'm going to try right now. So I have been silently crying as Jeff and Meg and Kristen can attest to. They're watching me during this whole thing. So sorry. You're going to try to have compassion for yourself right now. Good. Yeah. Good. Um, so Lawrence, you know, something, one thing you can try, um, sometimes it's too much mentally, right? And so sometimes it's good to do all this in your body, partly because it works at physiology. So the first thing, just ground your feet to the floor. So when you just, when you feel your feet grounded to the floor, that can kind of give you some stability in your body, you know, kind of letting the earth, you might say, take some of it. Um, can you do some sort of gesture, like, you know, putting your hands on your face or maybe both hands on your heart or what, what feels good to you? What feels supportive to your hug like this, right? And so just, just let the mind go. Just let the mind, the storyline of you and the story, whatever's happening. And just for a moment, just give yourself a little warmth, like you might your child or your good friend. You know, and we'll do a little self-compassion break. This is hard. Whatever you're feeling, you know, we're all feeling our own version of pain. I'm going through a, a lot of stuff right now as well. You know, this is this is part of life. It's it's part of being human. Um, you know, there's nothing wrong with you for feeling like this. You know, and so can you just be a little, maybe a little tender with yourself, a little gentle, a little warm. Yeah. And then do you see how that kind of shifts? It kind of, it doesn't make the problem go away, but it's a way of holding the problem in a way that's more helpful. Thank you. And I don't doubt that our listeners might have been experiencing something similar listening to you talk. Of course. So it's, I'm happy yeah. for this to stay in the show. <laughs> okay. Um, I love that. Very, that's awesome. Thank you for, uh, thank you for that. Thank you very much. You know, well, especially if you're a naturally warm, compassionate, supportive person to others, and I suspect that you are, the good news is you, you, got, you got the tools in your toolkit. You just have to give yourself permission to use them with yourself. I think when you said um, hold yourself like you would a child, and I imagine uh -huh. myself uh, hugging my daughter when she's upset, that really uh -huh. helped. Yes. A bit, it gave me some distance too, instead of imagining myself comforting my inner child or yes. my younger self. Yes. It's so painful, right? To confront some of that. It feels too lava. Yes. So it was helpful to imagine that I was hugging her or a friend. Yes. Uh, yes. Because that gave it, yeah, the distance that I needed to yes. be myself a little bit. And not because I think that that comforting your inner child, I think, is too raw too, sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. So there's three different ways you can practice self-compassion. Sometimes you just self to self. Uh, you can imagine that you're giving compassion to someone else and then kind of doing a little U-turn. You can also imagine someone very compassionate being there for you. Like maybe you had a grandparent who is so loving. You might imagine that they were there giving you a hug saying, you know, what would their perspective be? So there's really three different doorways in. It doesn't, it doesn't matter so much how you get there. The point is to, um, again, have an open heart 
and to be mindful, which I'm mindful, remember, also means being clear, seeing what is. We aren't, we aren't twisting it. We aren't distorting it. We aren't sugarcoating it. We're seeing it clearly. And we aren't alone. So important. We're all part of this larger interconnected whole. And also related to this is any single thing we are experiencing is related to so many other factors. You know, the current climate, the culture, other people we interact with, our physical health, um, you know, our genetics. I mean, it's really the idea that we're separate individuals totally in control of what's happening in our life is a complete illusion. We are part of something much bigger than our small selves. And remembering that takes, what we're doing is we're taking, um, some, some people think it's, it's really like not, no self-compassion, non-self, because you, you aren't thinking of yourself as a self. You're turning the lens of compassion inward, which makes the sense of self um, not so strong. I'm a human being like everyone else. Does that make sense? It's not really self-focused. By the way, I just have to say, Meg, you realized you were in a flow state when you were talking about your writing incident? I wonder, what do you mean? You were in a flow state, classic flow symptoms. Sense of self fades away, sense of time fades away. And it's almost like being on psychedelics, you said. Yeah. Same state you achieve in meditation. The oh. default mode network, I won't go into it, but there's a region of the brain responsible for creating a sense of self that quiets down in flow state. So artistic endeavors, when artists are in a flow state, the sense of self recedes, the chatter recedes, and you are just completely immersed in what you're doing. And it, you know, it can be really... I would assume, and maybe not, but I would assume if you're in the opposite of self-compassion, it would be hard to get into the flow state because you're in a different part of your brain. You're in the critical beat up part of your brain. I don't know. Is that true? Well, yeah. So, so the default mode and the reason they call it default mode is this is the normal resting state of our brain. <laughs> so when you have nothing occupying yourself, this is where the brain goes. So ev evolution and all it's in this and it's kindness evolved a brain, a human brain, so that when we have free time, downtime, when we have nothing to do, we create a sense of self, we project it into the past and the future, and we look for problems. No wonder I like to stay busy. <laughs> you know, this is a really good survival mechanism, right? Yeah. So all our free time, we think of what did I do wrong? What's wrong with me? What might go wrong? What, what, what was wrong? This is where the brain naturally goes. But when we're absorbed in an activity, whether it's watching our breath and meditation, or we're like totally into writing or something like that, that quiets down. Um, so self-compassion actually um, helps quiet that down because we, ironically, we aren't so, when we're self-critical, we're really self-focused. When it's like, I'm a human being struggling like everyone else, we're actually less self-focused. Mm. You're going to say something that. like no, I was, it's just what happens when we read because I, the flow state, because I am desperately wanting to read. Interesting. Right. Well, like, for sure. hundred percent for me personally, that, that I, is why I, I read every I, morning. I read yeah. a novel every morning because it helps me get into the flow state and yeah. Uh, and, and, and absolutely. But, but the brain I, on meditation yeah. and the brain on flow, you can't tell the difference. So you guys are meditating in your own way. How's that? So when you're getting into this state of self-compassion, I would I would think that some beliefs you hold about yourself or the world could bump, right? Like um, uh, if I do this and I love myself, somebody's going to take advantage of me or yes. I'm going to um, 
fail or um it's so funny because this morning I was in my head yelling at my husband about something stupid like it was so stupid um but it was, in my head I heard myself say well you always get to be mad and I don't and then I just caught myself and I was like wait a minute is that true and I realized mm-hmm. oh no that's my father like it wasn't even like current this thing that I'm racing all and I would think when you're compassionate some of that might come up am I wrong did the belief system start to rise up or no do they calm uh, well, no, no, definitely. So we actually have a term for it. It's called backdraft. So backdraft is like, if you had to spend your whole life shutting down your heart, keeping the doors of your heart closed to kind of just to survive and you start opening the doors of your heart, it's like a house is on fire. If you fling open the doors that you might say the love rushes in, the air rushes in, it ignites with all the stuff that's inside and it can actually be released. So it's very, very common. And for, for that reason, we often tell people go slowly you know, you may start practicing self-compassion. And at first, what you see is like pain and judgment and all these old beliefs. And you think you're doing it wrong. Well, in fact, you're doing it right. It's it's a sign that you're you're opening your heart and that you're getting in touch with all this stuff that you've been repressing. It also means you want to be self-compassionate about how you you don't want to like traumatize yourself or re-traumatize yourself you need to go slowly. For some people, actually, it even helps to do this journey with a therapist, especially if you have like maybe the voice in your head is the internalized voice of an abusive parent, for instance, then it can really help to have a trained therapist help you along the journey. Um, but uh, So that, it's an important point, but I just want, before I lose the thought, because yeah. uh, what you're pointing to, that idea I'm going to be taken advantage of, this is partly why I wrote my book, Fierce Self-Compassion, because there are two faces to compassion. There's the tender side, which you've been talking about more. The tender side is about unconditional um, acceptance. Nurturing is more of a warm, loving energy. Like again, with the, with the baby, you know, your, your, your kid may be screaming its head off, but if you're, if you're in that tender mode, you just rock that child. You try to soothe that child. You unconditionally accept that child. But there's also mama bear self-compassion, which is fierce self-compassion. And that's, um, so compassion is about the alleviation of suffering. It's like, by definition, it's concerned with the alleviation of suffering. Sometimes that means getting angry. If someone's trying to harm me, then that kind of fierce mama bear energy rises up and says, no, that's not okay. The Me Too movement. The Black Lives Matter movements, these are self-compassion movements. As people rise up and say, no, you will not harm me any longer. It's not okay. There can even be anger in that. Anger focused on the prevention of harm is a form of compassion. It's only when it causes harm that it's not. And of course, the line's kind of tricky. The anger aimed at preventing harm is a form of compassion. So it's about protecting ourselves. It's about um, taking action to meet our own needs. It's not just about going along with the status quo. You know, I say, no, we need to change this. This isn't working for me. We need a more fair dis- you know, distribution or I, I would love to help you, but I can't. I need to take care of myself, drawing boundaries. And then motivating change. You know, again, I said that before, people get so confused here. You accept yourself unconditionally, you don't accept all your behaviors if they're unhealthy, and you certainly don't accept all the situations you find yourself in if they're unhealthy. And so that's the fierce mama side, mama bear side of self-compassion that's equally important. It's kind of like yin and yang. We need both, and we need them both to be in balance. Uh, gender role socialization really screws us up here because men are socialized. By the way, it's not actual biological sex. It's how you are socialized. 
people raised as boys are socialized to be young and not yin. They're socialized to be fierce and not tender. They get called names if they're too sensitive. This harms men. Only 15% of the people who show up to a self-compassion workshop are men, even though we know this is one of the most powerful sources of coping and resilience we have available to us. It's because boys are socialized not to look at that stuff. It's like a sign of weakness. And that means that men don't have access to some of these powerful coping resources. Um, uh, people who raise as girls are socialized to be tender towards others, not themselves, but to others. Don't be fierce. Don't get angry. Don't speak up. Don't speak too loudly. Don't ask for, don't, don't, don't toot your own horn. Don't ask for too much. You know, we aren't allowed to be fierce and that harms women. That was actually a product, an intentional product of patriarchy to keep women in their place, right? Let's just call it what it is. It was a power grab by the patriarchy. So self-compassion is a radical act, both for people raised as men and women, because it's saying, if, I, if you guys like just swear, fuck that, I'm going to be myself, which is both tender and fierce. And to be whole, I need both. <laughs> I know. Can we clap? Yes, oh my God. Yes, yes. Yes. And I'm running for president of the United States. I'm voting. I would vote for you. Yes. Yeah. I love that your act for us to individually accept our messy selves is a radical act, a radical act. Um, and it's a political act. And a, it's also a political world, act. For the world, it's yeah. a radical act. Um, and that it's okay if you got because the anger for women holy smokes that's like the final frontier like like boy people are afraid of angry women um and and it's especially angry women of a certain age right and they're also get this competent woman people dislike probably heard this one it's so heartbreaking but people dislike competent women you have to be competent to rise in your profession the people don't like competent women so it's hard to get promoted or get pay raises if people don't like you Right. Yeah, I swear and, sometimes it's like people just don't, they have this mommy fear or something that they project onto competent women. And um, I mean, I do see, I see a lot of actresses pushing back on this now. And there, I think there is a it, movement. It's really starting to break to, it this is, up, you know. It's um, starting to change. But we need to be aware amazing. of the dynamics because women do it to other women. Women especially no, don't No, I was going like to say women, women do it mostly to other women. Yeah, because yeah, this is complicated. There are a lot of reasons. But it's this thing of balancing the yin and yang, balancing the fierce and the tender. What the research shows is there's less of this um, backlash if you're able to balance both kind of in a way that people can observe. So it also helps um, with that problem if, if you're balanced. So. I can't wait for that book. I got to go get it to right it's, now. I got to yeah. go get it right now. I'm going <laughs> to read it this weekend. I'm so excited. Wait, um, and, oh, sorry, Meg, go ahead. Go ahead, go ahead. No, no, go. I was going to say what you said about, um, you know, we're all connected and yes, taken out of humanity. Yes. Um, it sort of made me think, you know, we're all sort of raised or I've been acculturated to believe in individualism. I have to do it all mm-hmm. myself. I'm on my own, right? Mm-hmm. Being needy is gross, all those things. Yes. But if I think about it, if I reframe it in terms of how I parent and I'm trying my best to be a really Mm -hmm. good parent, really compassionate parent, that I can meet her where she is, wherever she is, and um, guide her through that with unconditional love. I love you no matter what style, that I'm included in that. 
that I'm yes. isolated from that in some like, I don't know where I got that idea, but when you said that, it was like, blew my mind. Like I had this idea that I was separate somehow, different, out of. And so if I include myself in that, it's really powerful. Yeah. I yeah. am as important and worth that as my daughter is. Like no, no one can be cut out of the circle of humanity, including ourselves. And in some ways starting with ourselves, because we're the only one who was there at three in the morning, you know, it, when we're still in bed and, you know, uh, so we, re we really have to start with the human being we have the most direct access to, which is ourselves. No, I think we should all be men and women thinking about our female characters and where is their fierceness yes. and Mm -hmm. uh, their fierceness for others, but for themselves yes. uh, as well. I'm actually working on a project about this right now. So now I, I have some different avenues in, so I'm really excited. Well, Kristen, we always end our episode asking three, our guests, the same three questions. Okay. Uh, so uh, the first one is what brings you the most joy when it comes to your work? Ah, uh, uh. Well, I, I feel so blessed that what I do makes a difference, you know? So when I, when, when I think of, I mean, I get just heartbreaking letters, people, I mean, it almost sounds grandiose, but it's true. I get letters saying, I was thinking of committing suicide and I read your book and it changed my mind. I mean, it's like, I could die tomorrow. My life has been worth living right there. Mm. So just to have that ability um, to help people. And I'm not even doing it. The reason I'm doing it is because I think it's fascinating and all of that, but it's almost like this welcome side effect. I'm not, I'm not this like person who would, I'm not out feeding homeless people. I'm not necessarily so altruistic. So to have something that I love and I'm so fascinated by be so directly helpful is just brings me unbelievable joy. That's amazing. Now I kind of don't want to ask you the second question. I don't want to take away from that moment. But the second question is, what pisses you off about your work? Oh, oh well, I can go there. I have a whole chapter on this. Uh, well, that's why partly why I left academia. I retired earlier to the point, the part of the work that, and I needed to do this as a, you know, as an academic and do the research. And now it's like a field of 4,000 studies and it's taking care of itself. But academia can be so petty and so insular and they didn't value the work I did in the world because I wasn't doing enough like committee work and it's just it's just academia so much of it is such bs that pissed me off I luckily I was in a fortunate position to be able to retire early so yeah um and final question is um when you think about your work is there a specific I'm trying to think of how to phrase this. We usually ask this for writers. So what we'll say is in your writing, is there a specific yes. scene or passage that you want to be remembered by? But or so you could think element or aspect. <laughs> element of your work that you want to be remembered for. Well, I mean, I guess, you know, one thing I, I do in my writing um, is I really put out all my dirty laundry in a way that's not typical for academics. I mean, I if you read my first book, I talk about some like, excruciatingly private stuff. Um, actually, I don't want to be remembered for what I wrote, but, but, but put it this way. I knew if I didn't, it wouldn't reach as many people. I knew if people saw me as like this altogether self-help guru and they didn't see like, 
you want to see, you know, someone, the mud I've been through, that that would actually help me connect to people. And so even though I'm naturally a private person, I'm not like a tell-all person. It's actually excruciating for me to be, to be that revealing. It's not normal for me, not, not natural for me, I should say. I do it anyway, because I know it helps people connect. That is exactly what we talk about all the time on the show as writers. That's your lava. And that that yes. is the connection point to humanity. Your humanity, that stuff that feels like makes you feel vulnerable is yes. the connection point. I just makes me so happy <laughs> to hear yeah. you say that. It's amazing. <laughs> Thank you so much for being on the show. I could talk to you for like five more hours. Um, <laughs> we will go by the new book as a way to continue our relationship with you and your amazing insights and journey that you've taken and and how you're really helping to change the world and thank you for being here and helping oh, us thanks so much to Kristen for coming onto our show it was really uh special and thanks for tuning in to our listeners and if you haven't yet please join our facebook group at facebook.com slash the screenwriting life and also please do drop us a review on apple podcast it really does help us and is a nice way to give back to us so we can keep doing this and remember You are not alone and keep writing. Thanks for tuning in to The Screenwriting Life. We love our community and we want to get to know you even better. Join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash thescreenwritinglife or email us at thescreenwritinglife at gmail.com to have your question considered for the show. You can also suggest topics by emailing us there. Also, we'd love for you to drop us a review on Apple Podcasts. Even if we don't read your review on air, trust me, we have read it, and not only does it mean the world to us, but it helps other people find the show. We've always been driven by mission and mentorship, and reviewing our show helps expand that mission. And of course, until next Sunday, happy writing.